Welcome to this podcast from the Religion Media Center, the only podcast to sit firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. We aim to ease that relationship, strengthen links that already exist, and help build new ones through chat, reflection, and comment. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We're going to be discussing the um, possible impending closure of the Interfaith Network after the Secretary of State for Leveling Up, Michael Gove, said he was minded to withdraw government funding. Um, The trustees have issued redundancy notices to the staff and barring any last minute reprieve, next week it will be confirming that it's going to close. It was founded in 1987 and has worked to promote good relations between people of different faiths in this country. It uh, runs and organises the annual Interfaith Week. It is called on perhaps to help communities coordinate responses in times of crisis. Um, And perhaps more important even is the proactive work done week in and week out with faith groups across the country and building community cohesion. We have lots of people on the call. Um, We're really grateful for you joining us. My plea to you all is because lots of people want to speak is please be concise and bear with me if I interrupt you and don't hate us forever, even if I don't get to to all of you as much as you would like. Um, But we will start straight away now with um, Harriet Crabtree to give us a little bit of context. Harriet is the executive director of the Interfaith Network. It was founded in 1987. And very briefly, Harriet, um, what's the journey that the Faith Network has been on since then? How how has its role changed? How has it developed? Thank you, Rosie. Well, the Interfaith Network was founded in 1987. It came into being after two years of very careful consultation about what was needed at that time, at a time when there were no formal structures for national faith communities to engage with each other, uh, and no linking body that worked with the, the nascent small number of local groups and bodies such as CCJ, etc. It came into being with a very clear brief to raise awareness and understanding of the different faith communities and the beliefs that they have that are distinct and what they hold in common and shared values, and to work to promote good interfaith relations. It did so, um, it became quite visible early on because it engaged with the Rushti affair and the increasing visibility of religion in the public domain. Um, I came to work for it uh, in 1990 having been in the States for 10 years, and it developed during the 90s an an even stronger faith and public life profile, but it worked to increase the number of local interfaith structures in the country. The early 2000s saw its profile going up further and the importance of its work being more widely recognised. That was partly due to the key role we played on the Millennium Celebrations, bringing national faith communities together for the first time as part of the official celebrations. But then, of course, with the northern disturbances and the uh, the tax on the Twin Towers, etc., in 2001, even more attention got focused on intercultural, if not interfaith relations. The number of local interfaith groups shot up. It was an astonishing increase. We continued our support work on that front and engaging with, with the faith communities. Government became more and more aware of the importance of its work. The London bombings were a key point, very sadly, even though these terrorist attacks were not religious attacks. Nonetheless, the terrorists often drew on distorted interpretations of religion to justify what they did. Therefore, the interfaith dimension of cohesion grew. I was a commissioner on the Commission on Integration and Cohesion after the bombings, and I led on the faith um, engagement dimension. And then across the period since then, IFN has continued to develop its work supporting local groups, engaging national groups, the breadth of the groups joined has grown. I think that's about it. The work is as it was and even more extensive. And it's been funded by the government since 2001, and I believe it gets a a good two-thirds of its funding from the government. Um, I mean, what's your day-to-day engagement with the government? I mean, do do, do you talk to them? Do they just let you get on with it? I mean, how how how, how's the conversation go? Well, Rosie, our funding levels have varied, and they have gone down considerably in recent years. Um, our engagement with government is of a kind of a practical variety, you know, keeping them in touch with, with important things happening within the faith sector, making sure that the interfaith bodies and the faith groups know what's happening with government. But the engagement with government has changed in recent years because government has tended to do individual one-on-one roundtable type engagement with faith communities and not to engage with faith communities on a multi-faith basis. 
Um, and that means that IFN's engagement has lessened in that respect. Right. Um, now, you've been living with a rather uncertain funding situation for, for nearly a year um, now. You first learned a, a year ago with a day's notice that your funding was unlikely to be renewed. Um, this was then reversed. You were promised money which hasn't arrived. Um, and now um, the chips are really down um, and uh, uh, it looks like you, you may be losing the funding. Now, there are various reports about why this might be so. The Sunday Telegraph has floated a number of reasons. One is that Michael goes under pressure to stop funding you uh, because one or two of your own member organisations have called for them to do so. One is that the Interfaith Network didn't issue a statement condemning the Hamas attacks on Israel on October the 7th. Another, that one of your trustees, Hassan Judy, is a member of the Muslim Council of Britain, which the government believes causes it reputational damage. Now, what is the reason that you have been given um, for, um, for the possible uh, closure or lack of funding? My own board is clear um, that uh, Mr Gove's concern is about a trustee who is a member of the Muslim Council of Britain. That is what the letter is about. Is that what the government have made clear to you? Yes, it's, it's, it's a letter. It's widely circulating on the internet. Somebody leaked it. Uh, as to a condemnation of overseas, um, of, of overseas attacks, um, the government is well aware of IFN's uh, policy on statement making. They've been aware of that for a long time. That's been they've been engaged with over that. Policy is that you don't make any statements on international um, affairs. Is that right? IFN doesn't make direct comment on overseas events. What it does do is occasionally, or it makes statements where overseas events are likely to have an impact on interfaith relations in the UK or are doing so. It doesn't automatically do that. Um, where an urgent statement's made, the moderators and the co-chairs have to come to agreement on that. And did you discuss making a statement on the Hamas attacks? The co-chairs and moderators did discuss it, uh, and they didn't come to agreement. They they were not in consensus about issuing one at that time, and a different route was taken with extensive highlighting of um, the need to stand together against hatred, a board statement the following week, which included material about this. So the co-moderators and the co-chairs did not issue a statement. They did not come to agreement on this. The board, which is the governance instrument of IFN, the following week issued a strong statement on standing together against hatred, incorporating a number of um, things about the impact of conflict, Israel, Gaza, Palestinian, etc., but not commenting directly on the overseas events. Thank you. Now, the reason given is um, the trustee who is a member of the MCB. Um, I if your funding comes from the government and you know that they don't speak to the MCB, I suppose the question is, why appoint someone as a trustee who's got links to them? The Interfaith Network is a membership body. It has mem it has bodies in membership which apply under the, uh, under the membership admission policy. Um, if IFN ever had a body in membership that it was shown to have broken the law or been proscribed, etc., that would be a different matter. Um, we were never informed at any juncture that having a trustee from any of our organisations would be a matter for uh, considered withdrawal of funding. And the Muslim Council of Britain, it is for them to comment on, on their position vis-a-vis -vis the government. But to our knowledge, they are not prescribed. They have not been, um, they've not had legal action taken against them for infringement of the law. Um, so I think that that gives you a sense of where the where the border at and why they were not minded <laughs> to use Go's language uh, to move away from the clear um, and legally well legally based articles of association and bylaw of the interfaith network. I mean, we'll come back uh, probably to the um, position of the Muslim Council of Britain later, but they are the largest British body representing Muslims, representing a diverse group of um, groups of Muslim communities from all around the country. Um, unfortunately, they haven't put anyone up to speak to us today, but we have a couple of other people who might be, be able to speak, if not on their behalf, to the issue. Um, I mean, I suppose um, the, the question um, that is raised here is um, why the government, why government generally might be involved in funding interfaith organisations. And I want to go to Susan Seagull, who represents Interfaith Scotland and is also a trustee of the Interfaith Network. Um, I believe, Susan, that you do get funding from um, the Scottish Government. Um, why do you think it is important to do so? 
Um, what does it say to you that the government funds you? We get about 85% of our funding from the Scottish government, and that's been happening for the last 22 years. So Interfaith Scotland has been well supported by the Scottish government. Government believes in Scotland that it's appropriate and important to be a welcoming and and, and good place for everyone of, of diverse faiths to feel comfortable, to feel welcome, and to, in, to encourage to have dialogue. And the, the fact that they've been funding Interfaith Scotland speaks to the fact that interfaith boards such as ours and such as the UK network is that in some cases we can be one-stop shop. So if the Scottish government wants to do some cross-party activity on multi-faith activities and working on interfaith weeks, you know, they can get that done through Interfaith Scotland. Interfaith Scotland has a board very similar to the board of Interfaith Network of the UK. It's made up of a variety of religions. Um, we all work very, very hard to be neutral and to be positive. And we all have concerns about our children growing up in a place that's safe from, um, you know, anti-Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. We want to make sure that our, that our people feel safe walking the street and they don't feel harassed by other religions or, or ethnic groups. And I think it's very important for Scottish government to promote that. Um, and, and so we sponsor activities regarding that. So I think it's very positive. And uh, those of us that are on the board of Interfaith Network of the UK are, are quite disappointed and quite concerned that this has happened because we, we don't believe it's the appropriate thing for any government to be doing. Okay, um, I know that um, Bishop Patrick McKinney, who's the Catholic Bishop in Nottingham and the lead Bishop for Interreligious um, Dialogue for the Catholic Church, um, I know that you had to um, go quite soon, Bishop Patrick. So I just wonder what your perspective is on this, on the importance of government engaging with interfaith networks, a, a national interfaith network, I should say. I, I was very saddened to, to hear the news, the threat, um, of the um, uh, removal of funding. I think it's so important. Um, I think the um, interfaith network have uh, been serving our country uh, for many, many years now. But the government speaks uh, so often of the importance of uh, community cohesion. And I think the work of uh, interreligious dialogue, and uh, the interfaith network uh, play the most important part uh, in facilitating good community uh, relationships and cohesion. Um, three things, I think. Um, I think it does an excellent work in the promoting and coordinating of um, national interfaith events through Interfaith uh, Week in particular. Uh, secondly, it plays an important part, as I mentioned there, in the building of community cohesion through the facilitating and encouraging of good relationships across the various uh, religious communities. And what's often forgotten, it plays a part too in supporting and encouraging the local faith forum groups across uh, the nation. Only last year, uh, I remember Harriet uh, Crabtree uh, came to Nottingham uh, to meet uh, the faith forum there, to listen and to encourage and to show support. Uh, yeah. All of that is invaluable. One question might be, um, and, I, and I don't know um, whether um, Adiba from um, the uh, Bradford Stronger Communities um, Partnership might have something to say about this, is that local authorities are very engaged in interfaith work, particularly in places like Bradford. They do put money in. Um, and I suppose the question is, in 1987, maybe you needed a national body to sort of um, get everything going, but that you have got very strong networks in places like like um, Bradford, Manchester, and so on now. Do you do you need that infrastructure centrally? Adiba? Um, yeah, we do. I've been with the Bradford Council now for nearly two years, and over the last two years, um, what we've managed to do as part of the Stronger Communities team um, is work with community police, work with the partners such as 
um, uh, the bishop and his team. Um, and it's really the first time we've managed to get all faith partners around one table um, and talk about issues. So when we look at um, tension monitoring, um, that's one of the things. So we've had issues around... Um, issues that ha happened elsewhere that never actually reached Bradford. And that was because of the work that we do with the faith partners. So it's really, really important that we keep... What that about going. the work with the interfaith network itself when you're sort of dealing with local issues? We have um, regular meetings here um, in Bradford uh, with the interfaith um, uh, network. And so what we do do is exchange lessons that we learn from each area so we pick up lessons from it might be from Brent or from somewhere else and they're not just about um attention monitoring but it's other things like the environment or um you know how to shed values and things like that so those are lessons that we pick and we share uh, in order to create a more cohesive um community so not to have those um lessons or share lessons is really quite quite damaging actually because uh where if it's a proven process that works, so why would you not then scale that out across across the country? And I think it's a really good way of bringing people together, but also um, it's a good networking opportunity as well. And I'll just, um, you know, this for this to be removed is, is quite a disaster because the other thing is that Bishop Toby might tell you about is that actually our, as part of the budget kits, our team has been, who carries out that cohesion work is, has been... Um, uh, it's a proposal to remove uh, 10 people from that um, from a team of 11. So that cohesion work is going to look a bit of a double whammy for us. Bishop Toby Howarth from Bradford. I don't know if you want to add to anything um, that Adiba said there. Yeah, thanks. It, it, it is really important. You know, we, we do our own little work in Bradford, um, but actually to know that we're part of something bigger and we can share good practice and we can receive good practice is really important. I think the key issue for me is who owns this work? You know, do, do we want a country where, where, where the government actually manages all the, all, all the faith groups and decides who gets to be a, a representative um, because of whatever their political views are? Or do we want to be a country where faith communities are allowed to do that themselves? Now, and of course, in doing that themselves, we need help because we don't have the we don't have the the, the resources to be able to do that for ourselves. That's why we need government. Um, but the way that it happens at the moment is that the government enables the faith communities on their own terms to get together on the conversations that they need to have together with the people that they decide represent themselves, mm -hmm. rather than that being dictated by um, a, a Home Office minister. Right, so let me um, let me go to Jadhvir Singh. Um, Jadhvir, um, you're from City Sikhs in in London. I don't know how far you can speak across Sikh communities about the value of the interfaith network. Um, what would you say at this point? Thanks, Rosie. Um, so, when it comes to the Sikh community, I think I, I can't talk for the the community as a whole. It's a diverse community mm -hmm. with over five hundred thousand people across the uh, across England and Wales. Um, but certainly with City Seeks, we have found it very helpful to have the interfaith network and to be able to work with the uh, the network in the past. Um, I was, um, in fact, I spoke about uh, the interfaith network and the issues that have arisen, but also talking about interfaith issues more generally this morning on Thought for the Day, because I thought it's important to be able to discuss this on a have that national platform in order for it to be raised. But then also looking at it, looking at the importance, I guess, of interfaith issues within the Sikh context. Um, for Sikhs, it's a, a fundamental part of our belief system, that we need to be able to have these sorts of conversations with people from other backgrounds, from other faiths, and be able to relate and connect with them. And one of the beauties of the interfaith network was that it provided that sort of, and it does provide that sort of environment where people can work together. Now, City Sikhs itself hasn't been a, an affiliate member of uh, the interfaith network, but we've worked closely with them in the past. This might not be a fair question for, for you. It, it could be for any um, faith community that is represented here, and maybe Harriet would like to speak to it. Is there also a, an element in which the Interfaith Network is not just a network 
uh, between different faiths, but among the different groups representing the different faiths. So, you know, you have lots of groups that represent Sikhs, you have lots of groups that uh, um, represent Jews and Christians. They might not always agree with, e- with each other. You know, Christians will fall out with Christians as, uh, as much as they'll fall out with anyone else and maybe more so. Um, so, I mean, I just wonder, um, Harriet, has, it, has the Interfaith Network got that sort of role? The Interfaith Network links, amongst its member bodies, it links national faith community representative bodies of different faith traditions. Its coverage isn't universal. It doesn't link every Sikh body, um, for example, or every Hindu body, etc., etc. It has a high proportion of of, um, those bodies in membership. And that's really important because many interfaith things are highly visionary, but they're not really rooted in ma- in the kind of mainstream I don't have ongoing life so IFN's engagement with things like churches together in Britain and Ireland um, board of deputies of British Jews etc is really important because you to make interfaith engagement continue and to flourish you have to embed it and embed it in structures it's not just about individual visionaries however wonderful that may be yes you're right Rosie people don't always agree and the last two or three months since the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel on Israel has have been incredibly difficult for example there are differences of, of, and I don't want to get into the depth of that you know IFN stands by all its communities in terms of their safety and well-being in in, in the UK but um but it has been challenging and there are times when communities disagree internally over UK entirely UK focused issues you can't get complete agreement IFN doesn't exist to try and get everybody to agree. It exists to bring people together to create that space, which is safe and well-managed to enable people to continue to engage and be in relationship. So that even when times are really challenging, one hopes that some of the connections can continue to operate. Uh, I know that you're trying to reach um, Rabbi Warren from Manchester. One example I'd give exactly of that is the Manchester um, Muslim Jewish Forum, which has continued to meet during this difficult period, and is an example of how ongoing relationships are so very, very important at local as well as national level. Let me just go to um, Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra, um, if I may. Um, the presenting issue, according to the um, Leveling Up um, Department, is um, the appointment of a trustee um, by um, the Interfaith Network um, that they don't want to engage with because he engages with the Muslim Council of Britain. Um, I mean, he wasn't appointed as a trustee, I don't think, until summer last year, and the funding was clearly in doubt before then. So, you know, quite what's going on, we don't know. But I mean, how do you respond to the suggestion that a trustee is somehow um, inappropriate for representation on on the IFN um, because used to be, as you did, um, an an assistant uh, secretary of the MCB? I wonder if it's uh, if there is time for me just to give a bit of historic background as to relationship between the Muslim Council of Britain and um, the governments we've had. So in 2009, I think it was the time around the blockade of Gaza, uh, when our naval ships were also part of the blockade. Uh, our then Deputy Assistant Secretary General, Dawood Abdullah, uh, the number two man in charge of the MCB, attended a conference in Istanbul, uh, which was attended by many people from around the world. He attended in his personal capacity, not as the Secretary General, uh, Deputy Secretary General of the MCB. He was indeed at the time heading the Palestinian Return Center, which was based in London. So he would have attended uh, in his personal capacity. That declaration uh, called for all sorts of things, including all means necessary to end the blockade. And he signed that declaration. Subsequently, when the UK government became aware of this uh, and found that uh, Dawood was also Secretary General, Deputy Secretary General of the MCB, they called on the MCB to remove him from his post and from the organization. Uh, internal discussions took place and it was decided that he was democratically elected at an annual general meeting He did not represent MCB at this uh, Istanbul conference. He did not sign the declaration on behalf of the MCB. He did it in his personal capacity and people are free to do what they like in a a democratic society, if you like. So um, the ultimatum was given, either you remove him from the MCB or we stop engagement with yourselves. And the decision was that MCB 
was not able to uh, remove him because there were no grounds on which he could be removed. Um, and so that was the end of it. Uh, sadly, that has continued all, mm. over the years, uh, which uh, uh, is really bizarre because many of those individuals have moved on. The organization has uh, grown, has changed. Uh, we've had a turnaround of people, if you like, old guard, younger people, and so forth. Uh, but the MCB has always been uh, engaging in the, uh, interfaith relationships. Mm -hmm. I think they were one of the first to umbrella bodies to join and support the interfaith network um, and continue to do so. I mean, it appears that the government is very clear that it doesn't want to engage with the MCB, um, just full stop, um, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, what does that what does that do to um, the ability of government to hear Muslim voices in this country? In my experience, it's been like they will engage with the Muslim voices that uh, they kind of uh, approve of or are acceptable to them, and will probably anticipate that they will say things that are favourable to the government's agenda or policies. The Muslim Council of Britain does not speak for every Muslim in the country, definitely not. Uh, it is a, an organization that is uh, based on affiliation, uh, mosques, uh, Muslim charity organizations, schools, community organizations, and so forth, uh, joined as member bodies, uh, around 500 of them throughout the country from all mm -hmm. denominations and uh, backgrounds. Uh, there may be a few that uh, are yeah. to join, but it is a very uh, representative body. I can't think of any other one that comes close to it. Uh, and uh, and so we feel that the this voice being absent at the table whenever government yeah. is engaging yeah. with a particular faith community, which yeah. is a significant minority faith community, is not uh, hearing what needs yeah. to Good. Yeah, thank you very much. And and indeed, Hassan Udi, who is the trustee of um, the Interfaith Network, um, is only appointed in his personal capacity and not as a representative of the, of the MCB. I think that's also important, important to make clear. You do kind of wonder um, what's what's going on um, um, within government, but they um, they don't really want to engage with us very much. They did give us a statement. It says... All funded organisations are monitored by the department and subject to internal finance and due diligence processes. And that's it. Um, that's the level of their engagement with us, despite very strong um, efforts from my colleague um, Ruth here. So um, who knows? Who knows um, what's um, going on there? I mean, I just wonder whether there's um, something to um, ask here about the, the funding. I mean, yes. Government funds, or you know, government funds things that it believes are important, that it's committed to. But there is something about getting funding from other places as well. And I just wonder, Harriet, um, whether actually, um, if you're so reliant on the government money that you have to close without it, whether maybe the I was taken off the ball of fundraising from elsewhere. I mean, there must be other sort of trusts and individuals who um, support the work you do and might might throw some money your way. The eye has very much not been taken off the ball. We've been trying across all the years to um, find different routes of funding. There are two things I would say. In the first roughly um, 12, 15 years, some major trusts funded, such as the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust, Rank, Weights, etc. We increasingly heard from them that they had pump primed us, funded us. Uh, it was time for the government to start playing a role. Um, Around that time, the, there began to be additional um, interfaith projects that were rather more attractive to them because they afford kind of front-facing local projects or projects with young people. Um, IFN as an infrastructure body shares the same challenges that other linking and infrastructure bodies do, that their work is quite, um, it's behind the scenes, supportive, and it's not the kind of the most uh, exciting thing to fund. So we have had funding for things like Interfaith Week from some trusts such as Inlight, and that's really important. But it is a big challenge to try and get the actual running of IFN supported. Faith communities support us. We have membership fees. We have wonderful individual supporters. 
we've had some we've had some uh, legacies and some important um contributions but it is not anywhere like enough to uh, to sustain the network and i would underline that we have only three permanent staff and one other full-time staff member and some agency assistants on booking we are a tiny organisation in terms of running costs, given our UK remit and the enormous amount of work we do. So yes, it's very important to seek other forms of funding. We don't take lottery money because of principles of two of the faith communities are very uneasy with that. And we have a we have an acceptance of funding policy, which means we have to be very careful that funding comes from balanced sources and, and doesn't lead to IFN, for example, having a major supporter who has a particular denominational um, approach or whatever. So it's a tricky right. one. Rabbi Warren, we were asking, I was asking you about the interfaith relationships in Manchester and the, particularly the Muslim Jewish Forum and, and the importance of the support that you get from the interfaith network for that. Thank you. The support that Harriet and the interfaith network have, support, have provided for um, across Greater Manchester for some of the interfaith groups has been invaluable at times over the last well, I've been involved for 20 odd years in Manchester, but it's been a lot longer, I think, as well. Um, I think the the way that the government have treated um, interfaith work and interactions with faith communities. Um, there are certain members of the government, I believe, I won't mention any names, um, that, um, that actually um, don't want to engage with faith communities. Is it because they're suspicious of them? Is it because of, of particular political interests, those, some of those faith communities? I might? think some of them are um, dislike faith. I think some of them are worried about certain elements of faith and certain faith groups. I think the stuff around the Muslim Council of Britain um, is, I mean, as um, I said um, um, uh, earlier, uh, that's, I don't remember if it was Ibrahim or um, someone else was saying, yes. Um, it was almost set up with sort of government support, but they took it back. See, it's historical. They refuse, and certain individuals in government refuse to accept that there has been a massive development and change and evolve, evolution within relations. Um, and, yeah, it might be historical. I think it's hysterical um, now that the government will not engage with the Muslim Council of Britain. My experience of people, Muslims, uh, leaders that they do engage with, is if anyone says something in keeping with their role as a Muslim leader that the government don't like, they drop them. I actually think there's something that we as faith folk across all faiths need to engage with the government about in the way they interact with the Muslim community, because I think it's despicable. Um, and, yeah, it's, we do need to ensure that the, the whole role of faith is valued. Um, here in Greater Manchester, with Andy Burnham as the, the mayor of Greater Manchester, um, I think massive strides have been made in terms of the way into faith and faith com contributions are valued. Um, looking at the faith covenant, we're looking at all 10 boroughs engaging more and developing better partnerships. Whether any funding's coming as a result of that, who knows? Um, that's uh, another question. But I do think in some ways we need to engage together, possibly in joint bids for national lottery funding. Um, I would hope that there's um, significant funding there. But we, at the same time, we need to put pressure on the government to say, look, you need to fund this work. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether they've set, set up faith action as an alternative that they want to engage with and to, deprioritize the relationships with the interfaith network. But I think the role, the, the, the role of the two groups is very separate. And I think the interfaith network shares best practice, supports in all sorts of ways that other groups can't. In a sentence, um, Warren, could you just tell us about faith action and the government's engagement with it? Because I think that might be quite an interesting uh, missing piece of the conversation that we've, we've, we've got here that you've just identified. All I've seen, and I know that the faith covenant idea um, is... Yes very um, sort of important from that. And a lot of groups have engaged with that and we are in Manchester, but that's not the um, sort of choosing them over, is that very limited work with the faith action. We want to use the idea of the faith covenant. Um, I know they've supported other projects that the government like to the um, uh, English uh, language courses um, uh, in a variety of different settings. Um, but 
it's not an alternative to the interfaith network. It's okay. a very different role. And I think everyone, well, I think all of us here clearly respect the work of the uh, interfaith network. We're sending out today uh, through the faith network for Manchester uh, something saying, everyone, please send a, a letter and all our trustees are. Thanks. I want to put a question here that's come to the chat box and I'm going to be uh, mean, I think, and, and, put, and pose it to Madeline Pennington from the Theos group. But um, Harriet might want to say something, too. Um, it's from Keith Miller saying, why do you expect that the non-religious majority of the population, as measured by the British social attitudes, um, why should they be paying for the um, interfaith network? That you know, if if the majority of people now in this country aren't affiliated to religion, are noms, um, should this not be something that the uh, the faith group should simply pay for themselves rather than expect government to fund? Um, Madeline, uh, sorry to throw you that curveball, but here you go. Thanks, Rosie. I think that behind that question is the assumption that faith is only relevant for people who have it. Um, I mean, there's lots I could say on that question, but maybe I'll just take this line for now, that actually um, one particular contribution of the IFN is around basically cohesion. And social cohesion is something that matters to everybody, whoever they are. Society, British society is changing. It's becoming more diverse um, along various different um, lines, including religious diversity. Um, and that is not a private matter for people of faith. Like most of those religions actually are, a clearly a public facing um, phenomenon. So I would say that the government needs to engage with it in terms of its cohesion policy, apart from anything else. Um, in terms of that cohesion policy, then clearly funding groups which bring faith um, communities together before there are issues um, and build positive um, social capital is, is a better way to um, invest in cohesion than what I think has often been government cohesion policy, which is um, responding to crisis and and seeing faith as something that sort of basically is a is a problem to be solved rather than a, than a um, part of the solution. Thank you. I should have introduced you properly, Madeline. You're the director of research at the at the Theos Think Tank. Um, now uh, we were talking about faith action a moment ago. Um, and um, they were unable to put forward um, a contributor to today. Um, Harriet, do you want to just speak to uh, the point about their their sort of, I don't know if it's a complementary role to what you do or, or what you'd like to say about that? Faith Action carry out an important role in all sorts of ways. Their focus is, uh, as you might expect from their name, particularly faith and social action, and we engage regularly and helpfully with them, particularly over the faith covenant. Uh, in fact, the origins of which I had something to do when I was a commission on the Commission on Integration and Cohesion. It's an important um, it's an important approach encouraging local authorities to engage with faith communities in structured and mutually beneficial ways. Uh, we are not um, sort of rival entities. They have had funding through a number of routes in recent years to do work, including English language work with some communities. And they do support uh, one, if not two, local interfaith groups, in particular Tower Hamlets. They do that on a kind of contracted basis. So I would say that we have a, a mutually positive engagement, but that they are in no sense a substitute for the work of IFN. They have a different brief. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to go to Ed Kessler now. Dr. Ed Kessler is the founder director of the Wolf Institute. You're a, a leading voice in the whole interfaith world in this country. Um, what, why do you think the interfaith network in particular needs its government funding? Thanks, Rosie. I'd like to say first and foremost, I think it's an outrageous decision that the government haven't fulfilled their promise and happy to be quoted on that. Because they said that they would give money last March until uh, last July until March, and they haven't done so yet. Correct. But in terms of the the work of the interfaith network, we've heard about the importance of it being an umbrella organisation. Uh, the void, the gap it will leave, even for those of us engaged in the interfaith arena, will not be filled. There needs to be a coordinated body that brings together local and national organisations. Um, I've never known the interfaith situation dialogue to be as difficult as as it is right now uh, as a result of the uh, October 7th attacks and the severity of the Israeli response has made it um, very difficult for groups to come together and what a time for an organization like this to close uh, again outrageous is the word that comes to mind um, Harriet um, 
uh, in the Guardian reported on the latest findings of the incidents on anti-Semitism. Um, we know there's a significant increase in Islamophobia. And again, uh, how is it possible that we can uh, allow this to happen? And those of us who do support the Interfaith Network, both in terms of our time, in terms of our energy, uh, in terms of um, sponsorship, um, are, uh, are devastated that this might happen. Um, I really don't know how the gap will be filled. Uh, an organisation like mine works in the educational arena, but there's much more that the Interfaith Network does. Can you give a couple of sort of on the ground examples of, of where, let's just say it's going to close and it closes next week or next month or whatever. I mean, what what do, will you notice isn't there? In my view, things will begin to wither. They won't, there won't be a, uh, a collapse. Um, obviously, Interfaith Week is the obvious thing. Will it happen? Um, certainly won't happen at the level if it does. Of course, Scotland's slightly different because of um, we heard there is a bit more funding. There is funding there. Um, I think we notice that with our organisations that need a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of TLC, a bit of guidance. How do we cope in a crisis? Who do they turn to now? Um, so um, uh, that's what I think uh, there will be a step by step uh, degrading of interfaith relations um, at a time when we need encouragement and uh, support most of all. Bishop Toby, I know you're not in the House of Lords, but you've got friends who are. Do you think this is a question for the Church of England as the established um, religion of the country to, to, to raise and say to the government what is going on here? Yeah, and I think and that, that, that has happened. Um, I think the, the, the colleagues who are bishops in, who sit in, in the Lords are, are very concerned about this. Um, of course, the Church of England has, as part of its remit, is to facilitate um, a kind of an ecosystem, a religious ecosystem, where um, which is healthy. But it's not; um, it's invidious for one 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 religion or one religious denomination to try and do the work of bringing people together. That there's something like somebody like the the interfaith uh, network does, and I think if we're not careful, we there will be a vacuum. The what the, the work that is being done will have to be done, and the question is then who will do it and who will pay for it, and will that just simply be the rich people who get to do it their own way, um, with their own agendas? Thank you very much. Now, Harriet, I'm just um, just coming to you. Um, I mean, presumably um, every year you have been submitting information to the Department of Leveling Up about, you know, what services you've provided, what you've achieved, how many people you've reached. Um, what more could you have done, do you think, to persuade them that this work is worth continue, continuing to fund? Oh, well, Rosie, I think we've reported punctiliously and as required across the whole period that we've received government support. Uh, and the organisation, given its tininess, has punched far above its weight in terms of the things that that need doing. Uh, it's not a perfect organisation. No organisation is. But I don't think there's much more that can be done to persuade. We have drowned in requests for more detailed analysis of of, of impact, etc. And we've we've commissioned reports. It costs time and money to do that. We've had a couple of very helpful reports on this. One of the challenges is that if you are a small body and you're constantly asked to justify, argue, etc., you do that at the expense of the actual work and the outreach work. And uh, it's almost unsustainable. It's like the kind of mass of barnacles on the hull. It becomes so huge that the ship begins to sink, if my metaphor is accurate. You know, it is a, it is a, it's, it's a very difficult judgment. So I believe we continue to need the support. We continue to make the argument. Government has has not said that our work is is not valuable. Indeed, the minister who spoke at the end of the adjournment debate referred to the value of the work. The issue that they're focusing in on is the um, trustee who is a member of the Muslim Council of Britain and the reasons for his appointment. And to underline, Mr. Gover say he's minded to withdraw. He has not yet formally withdrawn it. Um, and we hope to continue in conversation. And we do recognise that there are sometimes issues that government may have which are difficult to engage over, but we have continually stood ready to have conversations and we continue to stand ready to do so. So, Thank you. Patricia Stoat has got her hand up. Patricia, do um, let us know where you're from and thank you for joining us. Yes, I am the um, 
co-chair of the Nottingham Interfaith Council. So I'm speaking on behalf of local groups, I think, in this gathering. The Interfaith Network has been hugely important for local groups, encouraging us to share ideas and information, learn from each other, and also just to sustain us in our existence, because a lot of us have lost funding from local government over the last few years. A lot of struggling. And the Interfaith Network has been a source of constant encouragement and support in these struggles. And we will miss it very, very much. The other thing I want to say, and this is at the opposite end of the scale, I went to talk at a conference, um, an interfaith conference for women in Germany um, a few months ago, took along some IFN reports, particularly one about uh, women in interfaith relations in the UK. And people were absolutely stunned and said, this is brilliant. How else, who else would do it? And how else could it be done? I think we have a fantastic national resource that works well for both local groups and for the wider community. And I think the government is very foolish to think this work could be done piecemeal in any other way. Thank you so much. Um, Alia Abiari, I don't know if I have pronounced your name uh, properly, but you've got your hand up. Hello. Hi. I'm uh, currently working in higher education. I'm a lecturer in uh, religion, society and politics, but I spent um, many, many years working in the interfaith sector before I uh, went into academia and um, I've been engaging in interfaith as a volunteer since I was at university, since I was um, very, very young, um, when I first joined university at 19. And from there, I worked and volunteered with a number of interfaith organisations and IFN was always in the background as this kind of fairy godmother of interfaith. And I'm just really shocked and horrified and I just kind of wanted to share my feelings of loss. It's not really sunk in that this is happening. I mean, I've never been directly involved with Interfaith Network, but because I've worked with a number of different interfaith projects and organisations, I I know that it's always been there for support. And when I worked for the Faith and Belief Forum, you know, it was a very, you know, close collaborator. And I just wanted to ask, is there any way that if funding was found that IFN could rise from the ashes? Could it be potentially paused and and, and kind of uh, housed somewhere and then revived? Or is that not within the capacity of, of the organisation considering what it's going to go through Thank uh, you. in the near um, future? I'll, I'll get Harriet to answer that in, in a moment, perhaps. Um, um, if we're talking about what the future for the network might be, really good to have you with us. Um, thank you so much. Jeremy Wordle, you've got your hand raised. You're from the Humanists. Really good to have you here. Um, what what point would you like to make? Thanks, Rosie. Um, I would just say, obviously, we're Humanist UK isn't a member of uh, IFN because we're not a faith and it's an interfaith organisation. But obviously, we know everybody. We know Harriet and we know, but I know her predecessor as well. Um, Going back to the comment about the, the demographics and the non-religious, the growth of the non-religious, which is, of course, correct. To me, the message for that from that is quite the opposite to the one that was suggested. It suggests that we need more uh, efforts at cohesion, not less. And so, you know, I, I think what's happening to IFN UK is, is extremely poor. One of our members has referred to it as shabby. Um, but what I'd like to see emerging is something which is more inclusive of everybody, including humanists and other non-religious uh, people. Because from a social cohesion point of view, which is the point that Madeleine made, you know, this stuff is extremely important. And in this country, we're pretty good at it. So getting rid of something which we're pretty good at seems daft instead of actually enhancing it to reflect the changing demographics that we've got. So I'd like to, no, I think this is a shame what's happening. Thank you. I just want to, I'm going to go to Harriet for a last word in just a moment, but um, Susan um, Siegel from Interface Scotland has said that the closure of IFM would mean missing the opportunity to discuss good practices for working with third party organisations. I think that's something that um, perhaps we haven't highlighted, Susan. Could you just speak to that very briefly? Yeah, I think as part of our meetings and our activities as a board, we've had the opportunity to talk to various organizations and identified what we could all be doing differently and better. So I think it's the issue of good practice. And when you have dialogue, which has been promoted by Interfaith Network, it gives you the opportunity to see what, what you could be doing differently, what you could be doing better. There's always strength in numbers, and we can use each other's um, expertise 
to help understand what we could be doing locally more effectively. Thank you. Right. So, Harriet, um, a final word to you. Um, there is still time um, to save the Interfaith Network. Um, um, could you also address this question um, that was raised about, you know, if, if it closes, is it sort of in a place to be revived again if money is found or the government chooses to change its mind in six months' time, or indeed if a new government um, chooses to change its mind in sometime this year or next? Thanks, Rosie. No, uh, the, the board has um, has looked at a number of different options and putting uh, the organisation on ice uh, is not straightforward and has uh, many uh, real difficulties attached to it and expenses. This is dormancy that's being referred to, I think. It has examined all the options very carefully, had a working group that's that's made recommendations to it. And it is clear that, that, that full closure is the most sensible and wise option. And it's been given a donation, should it choose to do that, to ensure that it is properly closed and that the legacy can be built on. Now, um, it still hopes that this won't be necessary, but it is making a final decision next Wednesday. Um, I think that it is a, a significant it's significant that we're having this conversation today. There are lots of conversations going on. The board still hopes that there may be room for engagement with the department, um, but I think that's that that's the bottom line. And it's not the kind of organisation that one can carry on in a volunteer mode. It that it has thirty seven years of solid work, which has necess which has really needed staffing and very um, careful trustee support and nourishment. Uh, I'd like to pick up on Jeremy's uh, point, uh, Jeremy Rodell. It is the case that IFN links informal membership, faith community bodies and interfaith organisations. Interfaith organisations, a number of them, local ones and some like Faith and Belief Forum, have engagement from humanists and from others who self-define as non-religious. IFN's current membership pattern does not include um those bodies that are not religious, but it does, IFN does work with them over Interfaith Week. One of the th three aims of Interfaith Week is to increase dialogue between religious and non-religious, um, those religious and non-religious beliefs, and that is a very key aim, and it's one of our biggest programmes of work. And we are very grateful to Jeremy and his colleagues at the BH, at the Humanist UK, um, for, for, um, for the work on that and on that important dialogue. Right. Well, it's nearly one o'clock. Um, thank you, everybody, um, so much for joining us for this um, conversation. Um, it will be written up and uh, we might send a few um, copies um, to the Department of Leveling Up so they can see what was said. Um, thank you uh, very much to you all and um, see you again soon. Bye bye. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk, where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.